Welcome to the HR Community Podcast. My name is Shane O'Neill, founder of Civitas Talent, the HR and HSE recruitment community. Each episode, we will host HR leaders and discuss their journey and discover best practice HR solutions across the HR industry. Whether you're a CEO, HR executive, or operating across the wider HR space, this podcast is for you. Please like and subscribe, and don't forget to comment and share your views. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the HR Community Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Alison Scott. Alison is the People and Culture Director with Sistra. Welcome, Alison. Thanks, Shane. Um, great to be here today. Great to have you. Um, tell us a little bit about Sistra, uh, if you can, Alison, and a little more about your opportunity for, I guess, those um, who are listening who don't know who Sistra are or, or what they do. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so Sistra is a French-based company, um, and its major shareholders are actually um, railway operators, um, SNCF and RETB. So for those who have travelled the railways over in France, you've likely travelled on one of their trains. Awesome. Um, locally within the ANZ arena, so Australia and New Zealand, um, we provide transport consultancy, and um, we also do consultancy within the defence sector, and um, as recently as this month, um, have a segment of our business that will focus on tunnels and civil infrastructure. So wow. really a consultancy, probably more space and um, working on some of the big projects at the moment, including um, Cross River Rail up in Queensland, um, Sydney Metro West in um, New South Wales, and also again on the um, Metro with the domestic airport that will be out at Badgerys Creek. So some real awesome. showcase type stuff as well. Fantastic. Some pretty, pretty heavy hitting projects there as well. And, um, Tell us a little about your role then, uh, Alison. Yeah, sure. So it's been an interesting role. I've been with the organisation for um, just under six years, so quite a period of time. I am currently in charge of, I guess, the ANZ remit, which Mm -hmm. includes Australia, New Zealand. There's a team of engineers that I support of about 25, 30 people in the UK, which is a little bit strange for a global organisation. Yeah. Um, and I did use to support Singapore as well, so within this role. So, wow. Um, I guess, as you said, people and culture director, broad remit, um, part yeah. of the executive leadership team too. So, definitely um, sitting at the table with the CEO and other leaders of the business when we're setting the strategy and directions. Really interesting role. Yeah, it sounds like it. And um, one thing I'll, I like to do with a lot of guests that come on the show is uh, sort of track back a little bit. So, I did do some some digging and uh, noticed that you sort of stepped into HR in particular, if I'm right, in the um, healthcare sector. And then you sort of moved into um, where, I guess, where you are today, lots of engineering and and sort of more uh, consulting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, My entry role into HR was healthcare, not for profit Mm. as well. I think it's probably important to put a spin on it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And aged care as well. So, really complex um, industry and environment. I think it was a really good landing um, for me as my first HR job. Mm. Um, Lots of awards, unions. um, You know, our healthcare workers have been in the spotlight over recent years, but Mm. there really is um, demand for them. There is always those pay grade issues to attract staff as well. So it was a significantly large region. There was 2,500 staff within that region that I worked within. So, um, yeah, it was a great entry point for me um but as you know 
uh, wasn't long lived, and mm-hmm. I've been in the engineering and science sector for over sixteen years now. So fantastic, amazing! And then after health, where where did you go and 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 sort of tell us a little about the journey from there? Yeah, so moving out of health, um, I joined um, I guess that healthcare organisation when they were merging two regions. So mm. once the merger had um, been completed, I moved on and I um moved to an organisation that built power plants, um, mm-hmm. or co-generation power plants. I'll just put that out there. They weren't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they were mainly being built on mine sites or wow. areas. So it was throughout the Asia-Pacific region as well, so it was really interesting and um, a really good role where I think it was probably the first role where I started to target working for international organisations as well. Mm. I did study a bit of international business and in the remit under the power plant company that I worked for, they were a European head office. Um, we looked after projects throughout Thailand, Singapore, New Caledonia, so basically the whole of the Asia-Pac type of region yeah, wow. as well as um, projects in regional Queensland and um, Western Australia, so really good role. Yeah, sounds like it. And tell us a little bit more about that um experience particularly on the international side so i mean apart from it being supporting different countries and time zones like what what would you say would be the main differentiator versus you know a more sort of locally based hr director role probably um difficult for me because i've targeted those roles and i would mm-hmm. say my the majority of my career has been within that international remit yep. so I think there's always challenges when you're working is beyond the time zone, like you mentioned. There's the culture um, is one part. I mean, particularly when you've got a remit, you're trying to build and work across an organisation with leaders in multiple different countries with different Mm. cultures, trying to find a midpoint. But it's just the variety. I think there's so much more variety when you're working within an international remit um, for me. I I did do a contract locally for a government organisation in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the component it didn't have. It didn't have that same variety and mm. I missed that. And that was, I guess, a reason why I've continued to stay in international organisations. Fantastic. Um, within that international remit as well, um, given all the experience you have, Alison, um, how have you seen the different demands, I guess, particularly from an engineering industry perspective with uh with talent and um, development and pathways and, you know, even on the graduate side, because I know it's competitive here in Australia and a lot yeah. of listeners it w- would not, would be well across what's happening here locally or, 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 or maybe they are, maybe they're not, but um, internationally, you know, I wouldn't really have too much information on that myself. Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the biggest challenges as an international organization is particularly when you're in a skill shortage country like Australia, mm. When we're going out to market, we may be fishing in the same pond as our colleagues are for their own talent. Yeah. Um, so the competition internally could become something of concern um, if you don't have the right mechanisms in place. Mm. I know that's been a widely discussed topic where we are now and mm. we've got a lot of things in place that we don't overstep on each other's toes. Um, and it goes beyond poaching of your own staff. Like I said, it's about candidature as well and what your EVP is and what your offering is. And so. Yeah. Australia is always an attractive country in terms of weather, but I'd like to say within our broader group now, right now we've got a really strong EVP offering, um, which separates us probably out there. So, Fantastic. Um, but internationally, I think you brought up a few points and graduates is a hot topic. Um, yeah. 
very hot topic of everybody talking about growing their own talent and um, having those maturity of retirement age, particularly amongst big projects globally, particularly in infrastructure. You've always seen project directors and mm. really senior engineers travel the world for projects. And so it's regardless of borders. I'd say that's borderless and um, that talent's going to retire anyway. So we have a global shortage of extensive skills, mm. particularly in engineering anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely, definitely um, agree. And then in terms of, um, I guess, when you look at the wider talent space, particularly in engineering, again, um, what other sort of demands are you are you sort of seeing or, or even what sort of um, major challenges are you sort of dealing with on a, again, on a, we could start locally and then sort of um, on a more international space yeah i think um well covid changed the world <clears throat> right rightly or wrongly it changed mm. the way we work and yeah. we've digitalized and things like that and i think that became part of the norm um for us we very early on committed to 100 percent flexibility within our organization mm. wow um which was a big thing to do <laughs> it yeah. was before everything reopened and we said that's it we're 100 percent, you know flexible even when we return um, and that was a game changer for us, I think, in the market. I think flexibility is a given now of an expectation amongst candidates. But yeah. be a workplace that's committed to it and not trying to pair back. I know I've talked to some colleagues in other industries and there is a bit of a pairing back of minimum days in offices and things like that. Mm. that. Um, the other um, areas is just that knowledge sharing has increased. I think it's just ramped up a whole other notch we really linked in with each other whilst we were working remote. People weren't able to just jump on a flight and travel. So throughout that two and a half years, we really were, made ways of working where we did do that mm. international knowledge sharing. We set up committees of expertise and things like that. So that's probably significantly changed for us. Um, some other flexibilities for our staff have also been um, enabling them to work from anywhere in the world for a month yeah. each year awesome. that's to cool. spend time with families. That connection and realising that people are people is really important. And, you know, when engineers are so highly sought after, mm. <laughs> they've got way more bargaining chips on the table for um, things like this to be expectations. So. Yeah, that's really cool. And on the flip side, does that sort of um, type of approach, particularly with international engineers, having that flexibility to work where they want, do you see that as a, a pretty key attraction tool then within that industry? It's certainly one of our EVP items, yeah. I'd say, yeah. 100%. Um, it does, on the flip side, though, create a lot more work for us in terms of capturing our culture and maintaining mm. our culture of connectivity, and um, that's been a lot more work, I think, from a people and culture point of view than what we would have had to work on um, maybe three or four years ago. Yeah, 100%. And you must have seen it as well. Over the last couple of years, Alison, um, particularly in the industries that you've worked in from a HR leadership perspective, is um, the whole not so much shift, but the um, improvement with um, gender balance and um, diversity, and and that particularly in engineering. Have you have you seen much transformation in that? And um, you know, do you, do you feel like there's quite a bit to go, or? Yeah, 100%. I think, um, well, I've seen a significant change. I think there's some really great programs out there in industry. I know mm. that we're, you know, significant supporters of a number of those, but th there's lots of different ones to support the different um, parts of diversity. I think engineering has generally always acknowledged that there's a low representation amongst gender, um, mm. in that it's it, 
tends to be heavily swayed to more male representation and and that is the case globally. I think it's not um, just within Australia. Yeah. But there has been a lot of work um, also within other areas of diversity as well. And there's significant um, papers being written and a lot mm. of discussion about our answer to a skill shortage is to use DI to mm. make um, you know jobs that are sh- skill short acceptable and interesting to um, people who would have not necessarily been interested before. Definitely yeah. have the capability and the skills, but it just was never maybe talked about or discussed with them, so they never took an interest. And it's definitely an option for us to address the skills gap going forward. Yeah, yeah, it would be for sure. That's really interesting. And is there any particular countries, you know, whether it's in your remit or, or any of your sort of global um regional leaders remits um is there any sort of countries that seem to be leading the charge with that or um you know would you say are australia sort of um fairly high in in that ranking amongst my peers um i would say in terms of that dei aspect canada's Mm. very good and the uk seem to have a lot of um practices in place but australia definitely within our global group seems to Mm. be quite leaders within that sphere i think it's um it's good because we've got the statutory element. Mm. We've got the willingness of employers. I think well, my leadership team is extremely supportive of these initiatives. And then we've also got the requirement by our workforce. We have people coming to work with an expectation that these are the practices that are in place. So mm. it really is encompassing. And then we've got really great um, companies that we can partner with, like Tech Girls, for instance, um, mm. which is to entice more girls to study STEM subjects from primary school upwards. So those bodies really help us in it in our work as well yeah absolutely and do you see i mean given your experience in the space um alison do you see many other challenges ahead in this space i mean the world of work is evolving and i think expectations salary you know demands in the economy all these things factor in um and uh create i guess different challenges for these kind of strategies so we're constantly trying to move and make the, and be agile to to sort of align them to the right um the right moment but um do you see many more many more challenges in this overall i guess uh, diversity inclusion and, and equity space yeah massively and i think particularly um i mean it was international women's day recently and yeah. that gender pay gap gets a lot of discussion but there will be a lot more equity of pay discussions amongst broader um, diversity and inclusion initiatives, I think. I can foresee that coming um, specifically. I think there's been a focus and there's some really good mechanisms in place to measure mm. through WGA and things for gender equity, but um, I, I do foresee um, remuneration and equity amongst other groups also becoming a focus mm. area in the future. Um, but it's certainly difficult. Um, I'm probably the first to admit that I'm a generalist from a HR practitioner background. I'm, I'm not a specialist. There's lots and lots of um, diversity and equity specialists out there. Yeah. But it does pinch um, people, I think, within roles like mine about where to focus. Mm. Um, quite reactive in terms of the demands of the roles um, and where our focuses lie. And there, there is a lot more stretch about our bandwidth. It's great and it's really mm. exciting, um, but it's definitely one of the challenges to make sure that the focus is broad enough to be encompassing enough for what you need to do. The yeah, absolutely. And you touched on the demands there, which um, 
I've got a couple of questions on as well, because obviously being a business that are offering so much re- remote flexibility, um, do you feel like there's still a lot of demand there from maybe a um, HR technology perspective um, versus, you know, when it was, you know, a bit more traditional sort of pre-COVID, people worked in the office most days or? Yeah, I think it's driven home the requirement for strong relationships. Mm. So, um, I mean, I was fortunate, like I said, I'm quite longevity roles that I hold. So I had really established relationships leading into that flexibility. It probably would be a little bit tougher to form those relationships if you're coming yeah. into an organisation like ours straight off the bat. Internal communications become a huge item for mm. us. Um and, you know, where does internal comms fit within a business? I've seen it fit in multiple different areas of a business previously. Um, for us, internal comms, we work with our Marcoms team, but a lot of the internal stuff is done within the people and culture remit. So mm. there's that cultural element within um, communication that's quite um, focused. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with you there. And I've seen it myself even over the last sort of recent years, particularly in HR leadership roles where, it's not just people and culture now, it's people, culture, communications, risk, sustainability. You know, there's a whole range of facets that seem to be slotting under um, HR, which is uh, which is really, really exciting, actually. Um, do you see that something that's going to potentially continue, particularly in some of the more engineering industries that sort of demand on HR to continue the, the charge with different facets ac- across the business operations? Yeah, I think so, particularly mm. for leaders that value and can see the value from yeah. those offerings as well. I think, you know, communications and there's always that branding piece and external focus, but retention is such a critical item. When you have a skill shop market, you need to retain your people. And yeah. Lots and lots of engagement surveys that have been done over the recent years critically focus back on communication um, and availability and access and Ability not to be a number and to have a voice and all of those things, which makes that comms piece just so critical to success. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Um, couple of quick questions for you, Alison, before we wrap up. Um, most influential person. Yeah, really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> or persons, persons. <laughs> yeah, there's so many people doing great stuff out there, and I think you know you could choose loads and loads of different people. Um, for me, I think within the HR world, Simon Sinek has some really good work mm. out there that's really relevant um, for all of us. And I think also then going back to some recent statutory changes and things, I think Elizabeth Broderick locally has been really um, good. Obviously, her previous commissioner role and now she's got a role mm. with the UN. I think she's pretty influential in our time. Yeah, Fantastic. What's your best lesson learned? My best lesson learned. <laughs> Um, I think to recruit to um, areas that aren't necessarily your strengths. So to build mm. a team around you that's complementary has probably been my best lesson learned early on and um, definitely helps me to achieve a lot more these days. Absolutely. No, I hear you there. Who do you inspire, Alison? <laughs> Hopefully my children when they get older. Um, yeah. We'll see. I don't know if they feel that inspired. Um <laughs> I've always tried to have a team that has some more um, early career people within it to, to learn and um, mm. grow. And I think reverse, I learn off them as well. So hopefully some of the people who have worked with my teams over time have been influenced as well. Fantastic. What frustrates you? 
<laughs> Assuming there's something there that does. I think everyone has a frustration. I think people that um, assume probably, mm. um, and I think HR people would largely have had people assume who we are and what we do um, yeah. without any knowledge or of working with a, a good HR team in, the, in practice. It's probably a key frustration. Yeah. 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 I hear you there. Top three bits of advice or pieces of advice you would give a an aspiring HR leader who's listening? Yeah, definitely take opportunities as they present themselves to you, mm-hmm. um, particularly with roles. I think the unknown is sometimes a good thing. <laughs> yeah. um, the more, you know, information that you can get early on is really great. There's loads and loads of like half an hour lunch and learns and things about stat changes yeah. and things like that. And I think it's good to keep up to date and current. And I think the third one is to build a really strong network. Um, mm. HR can be quite isolating. There's loads of roles where you take and there's only one or two of you within business as opposed to being in a big corporate where you're in massive HR teams. And I think if you take a role, it's great. Regardless, you get lots of opportunity. But if you build a really strong network, you always mm. feel part of a team and well-supported. Yeah, yeah, I really agree with you there. And even on the network side, um, I think even the fact that a lot of us can work quite remotely now, which is great. Um, it's just, you know, being um, always, always known that it's still important to, to stay in touch and, you know, be part of a community and whether it's an industry body or whether it's more of a informal group that you set up with other HR leaders to, to catch up. I think that's really important as well. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely helped me along my time and um, still does to this day. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Alison, for jumping on today. Um, Hope everyone enjoyed the episode and uh, we'll catch you in a few weeks. Thanks, Shane. Thank you for tuning in to the HR Community Podcast. Remember to like and subscribe and share your views and comments below. This podcast was brought to you by Civitas Talent, the HR and HSC recruitment community. Whether you're a candidate looking for a new role or organization looking to secure brand new talent for your team, please get in touch with us today. Thank you.